Hi, this is Tom Field, Senior Vice President of Editorial with Information Security Media Group. I want to welcome you back to my series of 2020 Visions interviews with thought leaders about the security outlook in the coming year. My pleasure to be speaking today with Tom Kellerman. He's the Head of Cybersecurity Strategy with VMware. Tom, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Tom. I always love asking you this question at the end of the year, and I always know it's a loaded question. So, as we enter 2020, what are the threats and the threat actors that concern you the most? Well, the threat actors specifically are the usual suspects, um, the axis of evil in cyberspace. As you see, more robust and organized cyber activity occurring uh, from both China and Russia and from their allies, North Korea and Iran. Uh, both of which have exemplified true cyber attack capabilities and organization over the past year. Thanks to tech transfer and uh, consultative services being provided by their big brothers. This is not just a question of disinformation. This is not a question of political affiliation. This is along the strategy and along the lines of information dominance being the primary strategy to it to reassert the hegemonic roles of those empires. So I'm very concerned with the use of rogue nation states in attacking the West as proxies for their allies. Tom, you've been sounding this alarm for several years now. So I want to ask you to take a step back and talk to him about where have we made progress in cyber defense and where do you feel we still lag significantly behind? Well, we're lagging behind because we don't appreciate the evolution of the cognitive attack loop of the adversary. And what I mean by that is the cognitive attack loop is a carbon black uh, manifestation as an evolution of the kill chain. Um, the kill chain for too, too long has been too linear. It makes the assumption that the adversaries will get in and get out with what they want, and then they will leave. Given the dramatic uptick of island hopping, 41% of the time that it's occurring in investigations, uh, where they're actually taking over and commandeering the infrastructure of the victim company so that they can use that brand to target their constituency, coupled with counter-incident response and dramatic evolutions in lateral movement uh, beyond PowerShell, we have to appreciate that the adversary isn't leaving. They're never going to leave. Once they hack your infrastructure, they will maintain a footprint on your infrastructure and they will maintain persistence. And so how we react to them, how we defend against them must be along the lines of a focused mission towards intrusion suppression, not just prevention. And uh, we need to just come, come, to the, come to Jesus on that and have that awakening that we need to deal with an adversary that's already inside of our environment and we need to suppress them in a clandestine fashion so they don't leverage destructive attacks. Tom, for as many years as you and I have been talking, you've been talking to me about island hopping. So I want to ask you to go into that with some depth. What forms of island hopping are taking place now, and why can't we as defenders get a handle on this? Well, first and foremost, as defenders, let's realize that, yes, they will target you through your information supply chain, which includes your outside general counsel, which includes your outside marketing firm, which includes your cloud service provider. But they're not going to stop with you. Anyone that's going to use your information supply chain to attack you will then use you to attack those who depend on your services and your capabilities as well. And so, number one, we need to have a recognition and appreciation for the fact that island hopping as a modus operandi will not stop, and it will continue from the point of presence when they commandeer your infrastructure, okay? Secondarily, um, island hopping is not limited to network-based island hopping, attacks via network. Uh, they, they also include, obviously, watering hole attacks, which 
manifest not just vis-a-vis -vis the websites of major corporations, but manifest through their mobile applications as well, as these mobile apps are still vulnerable to the OWASP top 10. You and I both know this. This is compounded by the fact that there's a new form of island hopping out there called reverse business email compromise. Do not confuse this with business email compromise. This is when they commandeer your mail server, and because it's inside your perimeter, and because it's got encryption, and because it's DMARC enabled, you assume that it's safe, and there's no spam coming off of it, so everything's good. But realistically, as they commandeer your mail server, they use machine learning to identify who the most important people are that communicate with this mail server. They use machine learning to discern what are the most likely three sentences that were used in previous conversations. And then they push fileless malware against your board of directors and your largest customer sets, specifically the C-level at those customers. And this is a very elegant yet sophisticated attack campaign that has been growing in its ubiquity, not just in the Russian underground in Eastern Europe, but in Brazil and in Southeast Asia over the past six months. And we need to take close attention to the fact that many adversaries in today's world will use our islands to hop, and they won't stop with us. Tom, I wonder if you might talk to me a little bit about process hollowing, what it is and how hackers are using it now. Well, essentially, they're, they're using a legitimate process to embed a secondary process that allows them to compromise trusted communications within an organization. They have a way of, because of the limitations of visibility that most of us as defenders have, per what is occurring within processes and when processes initialize a new process that, that is not legitimate, they, they misuse that trusted ecosystem. Many times it's Microsoft tools and capabilities and protocols, but not limited to that. For example, many of us think that PowerShell is the number one problem for lateral movement, but in fact, it's actually WMI in today's world. And, and this is compounded by the fact that they're still implementing old forms of spycraft within our infrastructures to leverage secondary command and controls like steganography, et cetera. But we need to increase visibility. Number one thing we must do is we must integrate our security controls. We must have intrinsic cybersecurity through integration of all of our security controls. We need to do a better job of doing things like micro-segmentation, but most importantly, we have to be able to capture unfiltered data on all of our endpoints for at least 30 days to ascertain root cause. Because the likelihood of you actually stopping the attacker and the initial breach is minimal because of the nature in which not only are there forums dedicated to the customization of malware, but because fileless attacks and island hopping is occurring so widespreadly. Tom, I wonder if you might talk to me a little bit about destructive attacks and why you see those not only increasing but escalating. Yeah, th this is keeping me up at night. And granted, I've been in cybersecurity for 22 years now, and I'm, I'm saddened to say that it hasn't gotten any better. In fact, it's gotten dramatically worse. And this is compounded by the convergence that we're seeing between the physical and digital world. Now, to that point, destructive attacks have increased yet again, and they're occurring roughly 40% of the time uh, based on our partners' evaluations of investigations. Um, I think there are two reasons for this. It really depends on who you are as an organization. Uh, but geopolitical tension is manifesting in cyberspace, and many times geopolitical tension serves as a harbinger for destructive attacks, but not limited to. More importantly, I think it's because we've been conducting incident response too loudly for too long. You're seeing this transition from burglary to home invasion and now to arson, as a result of the fact that the defender is too loud about how they react to the adversary. In many cases, it's best that you not turn on the lights 
and cry out, I've got a gun, and I've called the cops metaphorically when conducting incident response. Because they may choose to drop a wiper inside your infrastructure or leverage ransomware, not Petio style, against you without demanding ransom. Um, but it's not limited to that. Destructive attacks can expand to more tactical endeavors of destruction, like deletion of logs, manipulation of time, segregation of subnets, et cetera, et cetera. And this is becoming mainstream. I mean, much like the mafia used to recommend uh, to their captains to burn the evidence back in the day, this is the same phenomenon that we're seeing in cyber. And primarily, I think that for the audience and your sophisticated audience should recognize that we as a collective, as a community, must have the serious conversation of how can we improve incident response to make it more clandestine? Because currently, even though we do a fairly good job of incident response, we are doing it too loudly. Tom, a few minutes ago, you used the term home invasion. Do you suspect in this broader threat landscape that targeted virtual home invasions are going to become common? I do, and, and you know, we can, we can chuckle as cybersecurity experts when we see the news about the ring breaches and the attacks on ring systems and homes, and you have these miscreants that are just being uh, morons, uh, traumatizing families in that fashion. Um, but because of the connected world and because of the nature in which the, the leadership of your organization, because they're wealthy, uh, will have a very highly connected home filled with smart speakers and smart cameras and smart lights and smart heating and cooling systems, uh, we need to appreciate the fact that it, it's an inevitable migration to extortion from ransomware to virtual home invasions. And I do think that that will become more mainstream in this coming year in a targeted fashion against the sea levels of major corporations as well as politicians before ideological purposes. Um, domestically in the U.S., I'm very concerned with the dramatic uptick of cyber capabilities and desire to become cyber, ca cyber capable of DT domestic terror groups across the U.S., uh, many of which who are beginning to do more than go into the gun range with their friends, uh, but who are beginning to arm up uh, with a myriad of attack capabilities and leveraging them in interesting ways. One of the big themes for 2020 is going to be the broadening of the attack surface through the widespread deployment of 5G. What are your security concerns about 5G development, Tom? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, it is not mythology. One of the pr more proactive stances that the U.S. government has taken in recent years vis-a-vis -vis supply chain issues and vulnerabilities has been their reticence to employ foreign 5G capabilities across critical infrastructures. But really, as an individual or as a corporation, you need to wrap your head around the following. 5G, given that it has supply chain issues, um, even though it, it does a better job of helping you protect traditional mobile transactions, it doesn't have the gateway vulnerability or some of the other outstanding vulnerabilities associated uh, with previous protocols, 5G, because of the nature in which IoT and OT, especially OT, are relying upon it to facilitate their communications and, and obviously to manipulate and create wide area networks, we need to appreciate that anyone that can control 5G or hack 5G can now control your physical reality through your OT and IoT. And that is the big implication. It's not just a question of your emails being monitored. It's not just a question of your intellectual property being stolen. It is a true question of whether or not an adversary can literally teleport, yes, teleport themselves into your physical environment 
through 5G because of the ubiquitous use of OT and IoT and then become relatively physically present in that environment. Do you take any comfort at all from the efforts by global manufacturers to come up with 5G standards? Uh, some, but you have to remember who's sitting on those standards bodies. And, and frankly, uh, I think the 5G and, and the, the nature in which 5G poses a systemic risk uh, to the security and privacy of the Western world, I think this is a great opportunity for the Nordics to realize a technological boom. And I'm not going to name companies here, but it's obvious that there are two companies in the Nordics that would greatly benefit uh, from the very proactive uh, cybersecurity stance that they have taken over the years, and they just need to do a better job of marketing it to the world. Tom, just over a decade ago, you had the privilege to be on the panel that helped to inform the cybersecurity knowledge and policy of the Obama administration. We're going into another presidential election in 2020. What are the cybersecurity issues that you want to see discussed at a federal level for whomever our new president is? You know, let, let's speak to the Commission on Cybersecurity briefly. We provided some some great strategic opportunities for public policy and cyberspace to the administration, and they only realized and acted upon approximately 40% of them. They were hamstrung by two ideological constructs that did not apply to the current cyberspace. Number one, the worst case scenario for them was the digital Pearl Harbor that Dick Clark keeps speaking of, which frankly is, is mythology because we're dealing with a cyber insurgency in the US, not a Pearl Harbor-like scenario. And because of the multiplicity of actors and the use of uh, cyber criminals as proxies for nation states and the fact that we're dealing with island hopping and all the rest of it, that stratagem, that threat picture, threat analysis was not effective in using it as a marker or a benchmark. Number two, uh, there was too much influence from K Street and laissez-faire economics dominating on the fact that it, we shouldn't impose any sort of a proactive regulation in the space, which has led us to the point we are today, um, which is problematic to me because, you know, the, the, market, the market has failed. And frankly, not only has the market has failed, the market has solved the problem like everyone said it would. It's created the dark web economy of scale. Um, but I'll leave that there. Now, in terms of the elections, it's not just the U.S., but the French and the British um, who have suffered significant malign influence operations. I'm quoting the director of the FBI in this regard. Uh, the French have done a better job than the U.S. and the British in containing and, and marginalizing those attacks. Um, but we need to appreciate whether you're Republican or Democrat that, for example, China and Iran also have a dog in the fight. They don't have the same goal as Russia, and they are acting out in cyberspace as it relates to these malign influence operations. Um, and that was stated by the director of the FBI in testimony to Congress a month ago. This is compounded with the fact that we continue to think of the problem as a voter role um, manipulation, um, vote manipulation, and that's not actually the most significant challenge we face. The number one challenge we face is the fact that the voter databases can and will be hacked and have been hacked in many cases, depending on the state. And the voter rolls themselves can be changed. The integrity of your name, your address, your birthday can be changed so that when you show up to vote, uh, you're not allowed to vote and you are suppressed and you are disenfranchised. And you can do this specific to political party. And then finally, you have the, the nature of which states themselves actually post on an hourly basis through a website from the Secretary of State 
uh, updates on who's winning in the race. And if you were to manipulate the results on that website, and you and I both know that's easy to do, you could actually get force the disillusioned and, and disaffected Americans who really didn't want to vote to begin with, who are just coming home from work to say, oh, forget it, forget it. He or she's already winning. It's a landslide. My vote won't count. And thus, you know, you can lean one state in one direction or another that way as well. So we need to look at this holistically. In fact, uh, CISA, part of the DHS, has put out some fantastic recommendations on how to secure these systems and how to deal with these types of scenarios. Uh, but those recommendations are take it or leave it. Uh, they're not mandated. And at a minimum, the states should be taking advantage of the offer from CISA uh, to conduct threat hunting within those electoral systems to, to get rid of the attack pass or the backdoors that have already been put in there by our adversaries. But this is not just a question of Russia. This is a question of numerous nation states having a dog in the fight and realizing that it is possible to affect the future of the United States and undermine democracy as a whole. Tom, my head is spinning from the topics we've covered in this conversation. I've got to ask you, given everything that we face and in the role that you're in today, are there technologies that particularly encourage you as we go into the new year that can help us to, to significantly bolster our cyber defenses? Yes, there are. Uh, yes, there are. And we, we really need to be able to weave all of our security controls into our infrastructure. We can no longer have separate security strategies across infrastructure and across endpoints. Um, in, in addition to that, I, I think the, the nature in which the evolution of you know, endpoint protection platforms is now focusing on behaviors and behavioral anomalies is greatly beneficial to the world that we live in. Um, because of the nature, we've got to stop focusing on the munitions and the payloads used by the adversary. It's more important to focus on how did that person take the shot in the first place? How did they know you would be in standing there? And more importantly, were they alone? That's the world we live in today, not focusing on the bullet or the malware any longer. I would also stress that you know, as application control evolves, it's no longer your grandma's whitelisting. There's many unique things that can be done uh, to, to ensure that systems only operate the way they were intended. I think just-in-time administration is here to stay, and it's a very uh, important historic moment in our world that we realize that administrators shouldn't have uh, perpetual administrative rights, and you should have the capacity to change administrative access specific to risk or threat to the infrastructure. And then dynamic micro-segmentation is, is awesome. Imagine if you could micro-segment or inhibit lateral movement or move the doors and the walls within your infrastructure in real time specific to threat and, and root cause. That does a great justice to uh, suppressing the intruders of tomorrow. Tom, as always, I appreciate your time and insight, and I enjoy speaking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts as we head into the new year. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate the opportunity. Happy New Year. Again, I've been speaking with Tom Kellerman. He is the head cybersecurity strategist with VMware. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.